This is Yes and Marketing, the podcast for people who believe that great ideas can come from anywhere. I'm your host, Steve Pockross. Join me for conversations with eclectic marketers and creative thinkers. Yes and Marketing is brought to you by Verblio, the friendliest content creation platform in the business. This week, I got to talk with a living legend, the godfather of modern marketing, Philip Kotler. Professor Kotler has written over 90 books and evangelized so many of the core concepts of marketing, like the four Ps, to the point that they're part of every marketer's DNA. We don't even know how they got there. In addition to providing a masterclass in classic segmentation, targeting, and positioning, Professor Kotler and I discussed brand evangelism, truly great leadership, and why successful businesses always have a higher purpose. It was such an honor and a pleasure to learn from such a giant in our field, and I'll remember this interview for years to come. I spoke with Professor Kotler on September 17th, 2021. I hope you also enjoy the conversation. Professor Philip Kotler, it is an honor to have you on Yes and Marketing. Oh, it's an honor to be on your broadcast. Let's start you off the right way. What's one of the most surprising ways you've seen your work used in the marketing wild? Well, I am just delighted that the first book uh, that got very popular, namely Marketing Management, really took off and defined much of my career because right now that book First edition was 1969. It's now in the 16th edition. In fact, Hmm. 16th edition just came out and it's a brand new view of everything. But that book was uh, a curiosity. It either was going to fail very dramatically or succeed because it wasn't like the normal marketing textbook. And by the way, I'm not the father of marketing. I'm the father of marketing management. Or I'm the father of modern marketing. I did not stop marketing. This marketing started in the 1900s, early 1900s, by economists. We didn't have marketers as such. We had advertising people. And the economists wanted to talk about how markets work. And they called it marketing. But they basically were looking at things neglected by the economists. Namely, the economists never looked very much at advertising. They didn't look at sales force and the distribution questions. So uh, the early books on marketing were assemblies of a lot of uh, missing theory from economics. And by the way, we still have this problem with economists. They don't see marketing as really the real world economics because we don't assume rationality on the part of buyers, they do. Therefore, they're not talking about real people. And marketing has the um, work of describing what really happens between sellers and buyers in a marketplace. The book itself came out and surprised everyone. It featured a lot of real findings. It assumed that marketing is largely a form of economics and organizational theory was incorporated in the book. And so it just had very fresh, new perspectives. And you know what it did? It was a surprise to me. It raised the disciplines level. It it raised the view finance and other disciplines had of marketing, perhaps that it is really more scientific than they thought. 
Let's start with your origin stories of what you were trying to accomplish in 1969 when you wrote Marketing Management Analysis Planning Control was to establish marketing as a kind of a more legit field. Yes, you know, the background is that I was uh, hired by Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management and given a choice to teach either conventional economics, mostly microeconomics, or marketing. And I decided that marketing has much more leeway for inventiveness. It wasn't, it, marketing at the time seemed to be more to be descriptive and prescriptive. Mm-hmm. Namely, it described what a wholesaler is and a salesman does and so on. And then there were prescriptive notions like this. A good salesman would have the following five traits, not based on research, but just on intuition and experience. So my effort was to lay down a picture of marketing based on real five days and so on. My aim was to bring marketing to a more scientific and pragmatic stage. Mm-hmm. I've always had this impulse to advise, to study something and then advise. So I wanted the book to really raise a lot of questions and have answers to those questions. In other words, do we need to do advertising at all? Yes, we do. But what is the best way to do it? What tools work best? Not in general, but in each situation. When does social media work? And here's this little story. Procter & Gamble believed in the new digital world. And they wanted to understand the new tools. So they took a chunk of their budget for advertising away from 30 second commercials to explore the new tools. And they tried everything and they learned what works. Hmm. Now, once they learned that maybe Instagram works very well, but the Snapchat or something else doesn't work at all, they started to reduce the budget for digital media. Because this is necessary. Any company listening now, you're going to have to spend a lot more to learn what works in digital tools. And once you do, your budget for digital tools will go back to a normal level. So overspending is natural to find out what works. Do you have a a favorite definition of marketing currently and has it changed over the years? No, it hasn't changed. We always start with a market. And the first thing we do with a market we're interested in is to do marketing research. Research is likely to lead to what we call market segmentation, where a company realizes you cannot serve a whole market. Better to be number one in serving some part of the market. And then when you match your capabilities to the different segments, you realize there's one beautiful segment that you could own, maybe two or three, but you focus. And for that target market, you have to position yourself. You have to become known for something different and special that the other competitors serving that same market don't have or do. So then you are differentiated in some way. And you're then going to know exactly what your purpose is in that market. And you're going to 
get into that market with four P's. So the four P's are basically to say every marketing plan, and you have to do a plan, must answer four questions. What about your products? What are they to be with their features and so on? How are you going to price different offerings? How are you going to make the product available through what channels of distribution? And finally, how are you going to uh, use promotional tools to get uh, it known? Now, the 4P framework is there, but it can be expanded. In the case of service marketing, let's take a haircut. A haircut is not something you walk away with. Wash some hair, basically. <laughs> and it was a service that was good or bad. So some people in services marketing added three more P's to, to the mix. And then some people ask, but where's packaging? Well, right. packaging was part of product, but it is very true that packaging is a key marketing tool. I think we're buying the bottle rather than the perfume most of the time. What about Salesforce? Doesn't begin with a P, right? Well, that's part of promotion. If you break down promotion, there's a lot of elements to that. So every company is going to go through what, what is equivalent to a 4P process, but putting maybe it's seven, 12 elements. And historically, when the whole idea of the marketing mix came up, marketing mix meaning the tools that you can use to communicate and influence the market. Neil Borden at Harvard started it with that question. And he came to, I think, 14 tools in the marketing mix. So when we got down to four P's, it sort of seemed more straightforward. And then it's, to me, a starting point where we go back to even some more tools. The four P's that you really are known for bringing forward and getting into the mind of almost every marketer out there, whether they know it or not. It's like religion that's been kind of fed to me. And I grew up in a time where that already existed and that was the right way to do it. What was it like when you were introducing the four P's? Was it so obvious to marketers that this was the right way to do things? Or was this something that you really had to foster and promote for people to adopt? There's a little story there. Jerry McCarthy wrote a book, a marketing textbook, just before I wrote mine. And he organized the material with something called four P's. But the interesting story is Jerry was a student at Northwestern University, a PhD student. Mm -hmm. And Dick Kluwet was his professor. And Dick Kluwet was always talking about the three P's, product pricing and promotion. And then the fourth one was distribution. So Dick Kluwet really was teaching product price, promotion, and distribution. Jerry had the intuition, well, let's give another name to distribution. We'll call it place. And it took off from his work. And I've never said I invented the four P's, but I think I gave a lot of push to that framework and companies started to use it. But what's more interesting is it has to follow with another framework called STP, segmentation, targeting, and positioning. That's the real decision-making work that a company is going to go through to get to the plan and to be understood by customers what that company is offering. Marketing is for every company possible, every organization that has some audience that wants to influence can use everything that we say about marketing. I thank God for media, social media, 
and the digital revolution, many individuals are becoming marketers on their own. Yeah. They can buy lists of names, people who might be interested in their offering and use social media email to contact them. In fact, a lot of us can get things not through big companies, but through companies that are doing direct digital marketing to you. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a whole growth area. I found it fascinating when you put something out in the world to find out how people are using it, that the number of people that tell me that they listen to my show who are not defined as marketers as their job, but marketing has become part of what they need to do to succeed. Yeah, absolutely. You bring in so many examples into your books, which is great. I think that's really how these concepts come to life. You start with the theory and then you see how many people use them and then you start to emulate those more than the theories themselves. Do you have go-to examples of what the four P's looks like when they're brought into life at a company to really be successful. And then both for, for a product company and for a services company that has the additional complexity to it. I've worked a lot with SC Johnson to make waxes or mm -hmm. cars, products to kill insects when that's a troublesome problem. The question is, there's a number of companies and that are competitors and offering solutions to problems. None of them are as well equipped as S.C. Johnson. S.C. Johnson has a lab where all the insects of the world are located. And they are in a better position than any competitor to really test out with sci scientists what works and what doesn't work. And now they just have to convince people that they have the expertise and what their purpose is as a business uh, in that area. I do a lot of work with companies to figure out the basic purpose beyond making money. I'm happy to say that more companies add another few purposes to their business. They don't, mm -hmm. they, you know, you go back to Milton Friedman, my professor at the University of Chicago, who said, there's only one purpose to a business and that's to maximize profits and people Business people took to that idea fatally. Too many of them did. It was an excuse not to give any uh, attention to social problems or issues that will affect the company sooner or later. Frieden went on to say it is almost unpatriotic to deviate from maximizing your profits. Mm -hmm. That's not fair to the stockholders. Unilever is an excellent example to be studied by anyone, not only for marketing and branding, but for business practice. Paul Pullman, the ex-leader for 10 years who did marvelous uh, work, he said, we have to move to stakeholder capitalism away from a shareholder capitalism, mm -hmm. because if we only are concerned to maximizing the return to uh, the uh, shareholders, we probably will have less engaged employees, less engaged distributors and others, because it's all a money process for just one group. And in fact, uh, a company doesn't work unless everyone is engaged and serious. So we've won that battle. I believe that most companies know that 
the reward should go to all the team members that are playing. But Paul Pullman goes beyond that. He says that we ought to go through environmental steps or what he calls sustainability. You must have a second purpose as a company. If you're damaging the environment in any way, if you're creating too much carbon and so on, it's going to launch you and haunt the society. So you got to be able to demonstrate that you have taken sustainability seriously by a set of steps, not only in your own company, but with your suppliers and other companies that work with you. For example, Walmart. Walmart told certain suppliers, we cannot use you anymore. We're going to replace you because the trucks you send your supplies to us in are costly. They're generating too much carbon. And you got to buy a different set of trucks because we, as Walmart, changed our trucks to be efficient from an environmental point of view, and you must do the same. Well, so... When someone says, oh, I'm practicing sustainability as a company, I would put the question, well, are you also evangelizing for it with your suppliers and so on? Okay, I think we're making progress. Now, the other question that's a tougher one is should a company care about a social problem beyond uh, environmentalism, like hunger uh, and poverty and homelessness? Well, let's go to... For example, think of the most homeless situation in Seattle. Uh, and the head guy who's very good of the company called the Salesforce, he's very serious. He says to all the other company, big companies in Seattle, homelessness is haunting all of you and me and so on. We've got to do something. We've got to collect money from each other full of money to actually fight homelessness. I'd love to. The brand activism, I think, in marketing and where these things overlap is something I definitely want to get to. I got follow-up questions there. The concept of Mark Benioff and all he's done for Salesforce and advocating for the next realm. I actually, I built a foundation at my last company at, at LiveOps based on Salesforce and I had to go meet with the Salesforce foundation team. And the concept of the 1% of your profits, 1% of your resources, 1% of your time. I thought was just an amazing way to change that dynamic that you were talking about, moving from stakeholders to shareholders who are, are stakeholders over shareholders. Yeah. So I'm really glad that you brought that one up in homelessness throughout the West Coast from San Francisco to Seattle. Thank you for mentioning the details. That's very important to uh, look at the good stories that we have, and the good people and what they're doing. It's actually one of the reasons that I went to Kellogg is I was a nonprofit person before Kellogg and I wanted somewhere with a deep philanthropic mission because I didn't believe in only, only making money Milton Friedman style. And I also had, uh, I'd lived in Chile in 1993 when uh, Friedman's philosophies had been taken to an extreme about how they took humanity out of the equation of economics and saw what that could do. So yeah, the good news is Friedman did good work on that country that certainly needed to think more like business people. But what has happened is it all got ossified into a philosophy called neoliberalism. neoliberalism. And that meant uh, profit maximization, basically. And now that's breaking down 
a little bit. And I, I think that we can cite a lot of people who believe that uh, a company should have a higher purpose as well. I think so too. In the 21st century, you've been a leader in activist marketing. How do you define activist marketing? I wrote a book recently called Brand Activism. Yep. And maybe I'll use that as an illustration. Uh, your brand could simply be uh, an identifier. Let's say you make cornflakes, so you have to say Kellogg and, and identify it. And if it does a good job, it certainly allows the potential buyer to know what's in it and how it's priced and where you get it. Okay, that's the four Ps. So should it do more? In the brand work, and, and by the way, branding is the work of marketing. Some people say you don't need marketing, you just need branding. Well, what are they talking about? You always have to have something to, to market before you talk about whether your brand is going to use a lot of branding theory. So should the brand convey more than the features and price and so on of the product? And our answer is, yes, it should sort of tell the consumer that you care as a company about them. Maybe that your purpose is to make their life better, whatever product you're selling or service you're selling, that, that you're a company that thinks very hard about how to enhance the value of what they're producing, even when they're successful selling what they make, don't become complacent and figure that the world's going to continue to buy that product. Do you know at Samsung, as soon as they make a television set, they put together a team to make, to obsolete it. Mm. It's not perfect yet. It seemed it's perfect for the moment, but it, things are changing with technology and so on. So with all of their products, they put a follow-up project to make it either better or obsolete it entirely and go into do something else with the product. How do you tell someone who has had 20 years of success that something is going to go wrong? Let's take General Electric. Do you know under uh, Jack Welch, they did fabulously well, profit-wise. Jack retires, Jeff takes over, mm -hmm. and then the company just flattens out. And loses its excellence. Well, because what happened during those 20 years is Jack Welch shifted the company from being an industrial company to a financial company. And it was good timing for finance. He was getting money rolling in, but it was an industry that wasn't going to be, he was sacrificing the industrial prowess that they had. Fortunately, they held on to aircraft engines and healthcare diagnostic instruments, but they paid a price. I have a follow-up question. I'm fascinated by this concept, especially among leaders to believe that the reason their company became great was their amazingness versus some other collection of, of good fortune. And then if they go to their second act, they always bring in the same one, which is, I was amazing. So this will be amazing. I'm wondering this is something you see and then. What are the traits of the great leader who can be amazing multiple times? We first of all have to think of what examples are. I think that Paul Pullman is one and 
I'll give you an example of another. In Japan, I work a lot with the wonderful man who runs the company YKK. YKK is zippers. <laughs> Anyone, any, every one of us has zippers on our, on our pants or in our pur purses if you're a woman. And it's always YKK. They know how to make perfect zippers. And he's so successful in that. But he decided to start a whole new area of business because he noticed that Japanese doors and windows, as they move away from a very simple housing, is not well served. And he enters the door and window business and manages to create success. So in fact, it dominates the work they're doing with zippers, I believe. And so that's the kind of character we're looking for, who has a mind that's open to other opportunities. And now you might say, well, did he use the same philosophy in making that he used for zippers to make doors and windows and become successful? Yes. The philosophy was loving the customer, creating growing value for the customer who stays with the company, always improving everything and never stopping that as, as Samsung does too. So, uh, look at what Samsung's doing with the mobile phones. I mean, they keep trying everything. You don't need to have keys, all that. Those are signs of creativity. We hope that CEOs, leaders don't get so embedded in their own success that they apply the same formulas because every market needs the right formula to succeed. It may be different than the one that succeeded in the market they, they've been good at. So the key is really this in general, and Jack Welch said it himself, although he, he, he missed the boat on some things. He said, the way to win as a company has to be through the top level of your talent. I have been appointed the head of GE to find the best talent in the world because our goal is to be number one in every industry, partially with number two for a little while, every industry we want to be in. So I think that if I have the best talent and I listen to them, I don't tell them what to do. I learn from them what we should be doing. We, we will have no problem financially and commercially. Excellent. I'm going to quote that in my next muster deck. <laughs> I'd love to talk to you about marketing trends, both looking back and looking forward and then at the end about how to identify them. So the first question is you're on the 16th edition of your marketing handbook, which is absolutely amazing. What are some of the major updates that you've done in the different editions? And I'm kind of interested in both what you feel like you missed in the first one, and then also what you learned and what changed that was unexpected. Yes. You know, we sort of got to that answer through the work we did on marketing 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, and 5.0. We did write a book called 3.0. We never wrote 1.0 and 2.0, but we said in 3.0, your marketing could be just functional. You make mm -hmm. a product, you price it, you sell it. That's not enough anymore. Buying is a more of an emotional experience than just a rational experience. Now that may not be clear in marketing management, first edition, the, the role of emotions, 
who really buys and how they're motivated. So one of the things we got into was to recognize that maybe 90% of not only your decision as a consumer, but maybe 90% of your decision as a producer is guided by your sense of risk and emotional ideas that are at a subconscious level. So we brought that in. That was very important. Then uh, we moved in 4.0 to say, you know, there's a revolution going on. We're leaving the age of the analog age and moving into the digital age. And my God, any company's going to fail if it doesn't learn what it can to be more digitally oriented. So we uh, did that in 4.0. And then in 5.0, and these are marketing trends, the first one being strong digital trend that, and, and by the way, we did say that this is not absolutely traditional marketing. Don't give up your 30 second commercials because here's the relationship. You're trying to build your brand. You should have some basic statement about what your brand is. You do it best through a 30 second commercial because mm -hmm. it's not differentiated for anyone. It's a standard thing for everyone to get some idea of what you're like as a company and what you're offering. But then with the digital age, it's your opportunity to amplify and customize and take your basic concept of the brand and move it into different segments of the market and, and, and so on. So you know who does that so well? Again, Unilever. Unilever owns Ben & Jerry, owns Dove, owns so many properties. In each case, each of those managers of the brand, brand managers, has to define the purpose of the brand, the higher purpose of the brand. Not only that, I mean, you know, Dove is such a good example. Dove is not just a soap, right? A dove is a recognition of her beauty. Wherever it may have come from, she has beauty. Okay. Unilever has many divisions. They have a food division. Guess what? The head of the food division has to find out the purpose of the food division. And the purpose is to make healthy food and avoid, you know, fat, sugar, and salt, and somehow figure out how to create taste that's safe taste and good taste. They have another division, a cleaning division. They have a higher purpose for the cleaning division. So I think they're being brand activists. They're, mm -hmm. they're making the brand stand for more and the company stand for more than the normal brand, which just defines what your product's going to be like. So some of the big trends that it has to take on digital, it doesn't get rid of the old channels. It just adds more channels to it and becomes more complex. And then it becomes more than just reporting back profits to shareholders. It becomes activism. And how do you make a big impact? In other words, why shouldn't all companies consider their impact? So companies may never have thought of being activists, but they cannot not be. They're in a position where there will be more and more people who will grade them. I'll go further. You can't win unless you're a good company. The fact you're not good, you're hurting the environment or doing other things, feeding us bad food, whatever, will hurt you eventually. So. It's a question of activism 
that makes you alert to what consumers really want. And I would watch very carefully the millennials. And of course, millennials are already established in industry and, and making waves. We even saw how they stopped Google from doing something. And millennials want two things. One is they want a life in business that is balanced with family, family mm -hmm. and work, have a good relationship. And secondly, they, they want a concern with social issues because the planet warming is not a good thought. COVID is a real problem. So they want their company to show some kind of effort, effort to be good and helpful in these ways. And I think that how many companies are active in this way, but I think a growing number are. I'm really interested to see where this social pressure starts to impact labor wages, especially in the freelancer economy. Yeah. And if companies like Uber and like Amazon, well, Amazon's kind of leading the way in some of these ways too. Mm -hmm. The pressure on wages gets back to actually some of the old labor spirit of doing right by the, the broader workers. Well, you know, the workers don't have a voice in their companies, uh, a collective voice. <clears throat> they did when they were unionized. Right. But we know unions can get, can degenerate some of them with leadership that is acting like private business interests. One of the other problems of unions is you don't want them to be ludite, stopping a company from progress in a sense, moving forward because it hurts too many of their employees. I mean, if you get too ludite, soon you will be technologically obsolete because you're not allowing things that will help in the long run, going through. I'm so interested now in how employees feel about their company. You know, I sometimes think that probably 70 or 8% of the employees of any company are almost indifferent. They'll, they'll show work, they'll do their work, but they're not engaged because there's nothing in extra work on their part to reward them for it. And so I think that companies and especially service companies where, you know, it's your employees, it's a restaurant, people who are serving the food and so on, they should be key to the success of a service business because they see it as family and their own business. How do you get workers to feel if this was a cooperative and I've been pushing for more cooperative organizations because the employees are sharing the wealth right. to get bonuses and so on. But this guy, YKK, the one who leads it, he insists that everyone working for him has three sources of income, the wages, the bonuses that are shared generously, and the dividends because they own part of the business. He wants people working for him to have ownership in the business. It's amazing how many examples of Kellogg were taught about Southwest and how they really thought so much about their people. Their people became the product and they gave themselves a competitive advantage and how few companies followed suit. I really thought that this would be a bigger wave. I see a lot of the people that I talked to on this program talking more and more about focusing on people first. And when you focus internally, it actually makes external stronger. So I have hope. You know, one of the hotel chains said that customers are not number one. Mm -hmm. Employees are number one. 
if our customers meet a bad employee, we lost the customer. So they're both so important that I'm surprised that we've mistreated employees, basically. I would give new employees and, and old ones a stock in the company just to say, want you to know that you're part of the family. Cool. That's what we do here at Rubia. So I deeply believe in everything you're saying. We are running short on time. Are there any of the topics that we didn't get to cover that you want to make sure we bring forward today? Well, uh, one thing is the COVID problem. And I'm interested in the problems that companies have to solve. Do you want to bring your employees all back to the office or still allow some of them to be part-time people? Uh, to work at home. Are you going to insist that your employees wear a mask when they face a customer and they actually come to the office or not? Are you going to insist that they should be vaccinated or not? And then it goes on to a whole bunch of other questions that companies are facing. And I think it will make a very big difference to remember companies are short of employees now and they've got to without anyone preaching about this, they, they have to re-examine what will be exciting enough to, to get someone to join the company. And so the problem will solve itself eventually, but I always ask, what are the problems that companies are trying to solve and what, where are consumers in their mindset about companies and jobs and, and products and services? I'm basically oriented toward decision-making. And what are, what are key decisions that consumers and companies have to make? I'm really interested to see following up on the trend that you're just talking about all. So we're a year later, there's a major labor shortage a year ago, everybody fired all their employees and let go of 20% of people in no time. I feel like we can do a study of this 10 years later, which companies paid the price for overreacting and not doing right by their employees and which ones gave themselves a long-term competitive advantage by doing right when things were hard. Wonderful study. I don't teach now. I'm emeritus. I would have put the class on that problem. I have a feeling you still know some people that could do that. Professor Collar, one of the challenges of having uh, 60, 80 books out there in the world is where do people start when they want to start learning from you? Well, you know, I just wrote a book called H2H Marketing. And what we mean by H2H is uh, human to human. And what it does is it brings in the old basic concepts and that's three new things. One of them is design thinking. Design and marketing are similar. Marketers are designing the product and the channels and so on and so forth. So let me leave it to you that H2H uh, marketing would be a good choice. One more book that is very good to talk about is a uh, 5.0. 5.0 gets into the new techniques of using algorithms, running our business with algorithms, using what we call marketing automation, using virtual reality and augmented reality. A whole set of new tools that are coming along described in 5.0 and also in 5.0, a very excellent discussion of the generations. I mean, all the way from the guys running the companies today to the top managers, which is another generation, to the average person in the company, down to the millennials, down to the generation Z. You know, each generation has had a different experience with the events in their lives when they were born and 
school and they listen to different music. Just to reach a generation, you have to remember what it was like for someone to be growing up who's now 20. What mm -hmm. it was like to, for someone who was, is now 50 and they were growing up at a different time. So if you start segmenting that way, you would really have quite different messages and offers to different generations. So I would say besides H2H, uh, that marketing 5.0 is very stimulating as a book. Professor Kotlash, thank you so much for your time, for sharing your wisdom with me and with our audience. It has been an absolute honor. Thanks for listening to Yes in Marketing. If you enjoy the show or learned something new today, please take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It means a lot. Thanks. Thanks.